Good morning, TBA. I do have a radical group therapy. Uh, we have lost the other clicker, which is the new clicker. This is the old clicker. So if you, if you turn up that clicker, we will, we will, there's a reward of $20 for anybody who finds the clicker. Do not move until the church service is over. I'll come in and get you, boy. <laughs> well, how many of you have seen What About Bob? Very good. How many of you know someone like Bob? How many of you have someone in your family like Bob? How many of you are Bob? Thank you for admitting it. Well, we're in the middle of our series on relationships, and uh, we're going to talk today about the difficult relationships that we have in our, in our lives. And so I'd like to read a story that Paul Harvey did years ago, but I think it's a great way to introduce the subject of relationships. John and Isabel led a very quiet life. One day, John turned to Isabel and said, Guess who's coming to dinner? Isabel couldn't guess, so John told her on that very evening, September 3rd, 1971, the ex-wife of John would be coming for a visit, in fact, a very long visit. She would be staying permanently. Ladies, put yourself in Isabel's place for a minute. John wasn't the easiest person to live with anyway, and now suddenly out of the blue he wants you to share his home with someone to whom he was married for years. You have your reaction, but remarkably Isabel listened and patiently allowed John to explain the circumstance. Evidently his former wife had been traveling for almost 20 years. For some time she had disappeared in South America and then resurfaced in Bonn, Germany. From there she ended up in Rome and then Milan, Italy. And now, at last, she was returning to her former husband. And what had happened in the intervening years did not matter. Her place was with him. Isabel listened calmly. After all, John was 75 years of age, and if seeing his ex-wife would somehow fulfill him, she reasoned why should she deny him this opportunity. So Isabel welcomed John's former wife. If you can imagine doing that, the first evening at a candlelight table, they, they were seated, John and Isabel and John's ex-wife, who said nothing the entire meal. John did a lot of reminiscing about the past, but his ex-wife failed to even smile. How do you explain Isabel's apparent sympathy for the other woman? For not only did she tolerate her presence, but she cared for the woman, fussed over her, even fixed her hair. Yet John's wife, ex-wife remained cold and indifferent, not showing even one slight gratitude. She stayed on every night and was there at the dinner table as visitors would testify. And the, that was a truly remarkable thing because John's ex-wife had been dead for 19 years. 19 years earlier, she had been embalmed. After almost a year's labor over her lifeless body, she had been preserved almost perfectly. The job had cost over $100,000, and then her body had been lost, and for 19 years, John had searched for it, and now at last, in 1971, he finally succeeded. She was, in his point of view, as lovely as ever, and that is why in a lavish villa in an exclusive suburb of Madrid, Spain, a cadaver came to dinner, the object of an exiled dis uh, dictator's persistent affection. 
For he, John, was none other than Argentina's own Juan Perón. And his former wife, a woman whose charm not even 19 years of death could diminish, is remembered today simply as what? Evita. Remember the movie? They just made a movie about her a couple of years ago. Well, that's pretty sick. (laughs) And when you hear Paul Harvey tell that story, as he did back in the day, it should send shivers down your spine. But as I thought about today's message with difficult relationships as it pertains to forgiveness... I thought it's not any sicker than what happens all across this country, all across our town in the homes of believers who drag corpses to the dinner table. We all bring baggage into our marriage and we bring sometimes the baggage of an unforgiven situation. Corpses of unresolved conflicts, corpses of unfinished past, corpses of unforgiven relationships. And in your life, I'm sure there has been someone that has left you in an unresolved place, a parent that did not parent you well, a teacher that was disappointment, a coach that promised one thing and delivered another, a child who's been a great, difficult person to deal with. And we drag these things along and we prop them up with us wherever we go and the people in our lives suffer for that. And so today, as we deal with those difficult relationships, I want to talk to you about the idea of forgiveness. The idea of forgiveness as it appears in Matthew chapter 18. This is the context. Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Now, Matthew is the gospel of the king. If you're studying the life of Christ with us, you know that Matthew is showing that Jesus is the king of the Jewish people. And in chapter 16, there's a great event in the life of Peter. Peter is asked, along with the other disciples, by Jesus, who do people say that I am? And, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a prophet, uh, some say you're this, some say you're that. Jeremiah is in the list. And Jesus says, but you, who do you say that I am? And Peter steps it up. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And with that, Peter passes the test. He gets an A in discipleship. And Jesus there says, Blessed are you, Simon Peter. Flesh and blood did not deliver this to you, but your Father who is in heaven and Peter just doing so well. Chapter 16, unfortunately, devolves into chapter 17, where a week after after the testimony of Peter, Jesus takes Peter and James and John to the mountain of transfiguration. And he literally shows them his glory as the king, as God in the flesh. And Peter starts to talk, and Lord, we're going to do this. And, we're, and, and God says, Peter, shut up. That's a paraphrase. And Peter's there in the presence of Jesus in a glorified state. And as they're heading down the mountain, Jesus says, now here's the deal, guys. I'm going to Jerusalem, and they're going to arrest me and persecute me and crucify me and kill me. And Peter steps in and says, oh, no, time out, Lord. You're not going anywhere. We'll never let you die. And Jesus, lovingly but firmly, says, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. (laughs) I was doing so well in chapter 16. Now, chapter 17, I'm in the valley of the shadow. And then we get to chapter 18. And I know Peter, all he wants to do is please. He's the foot-and-mouth disciple that I identify with. And he says, Lord, we're talking about forgiveness anyway. How often should I forgive? Seven times? Now again, in in Peter's day, the Pharisees taught that you had to forgive three times. 
And so Peter says, three times three. I'm twice as good as the Pharisees, and I'll add one for good measure. Plus, seven's the perfect number in the ancient world. How about seven times? And Jesus just cuts his knees out from under me. He says, I do not say to you, up to seven times, but what? Seventy times seven. Math majors, how many times? What's 70 times 7? How are you ever going to the next grade, young man? Whose child is this? 490 times. Now, what is the deal about that number? Thank you, Bryce. I think this. I think if someone has offended you and you've forgiven them 490 times, that the 491st time is not going to be that difficult. I also think this, that we're dealing with Jewish people here. And the Jewish nation had offended God 490 years in a row by not keeping their sabbatical year. The Sabbath year was a time for rest. And they owed God 490 years, and God in his love was willing to forget and release and cancel the debt by forgiving them. And I think God is saying, hey, he's not asking anybody to do that which he has not already done. And so Jesus, in order to unpack this principle of forgiveness, tells a parable. But the principle of the parable is simply this. If you're counting, you are not forgiving. If someone has offended you and offended you and offended you and you start keeping keeping count, you're not forgiving. And so Jesus wants us to get that at least from the parable. So the question that Peter asks is a good one. How often do we have to forgive as followers of Christ. And Jesus, the gifted, amazing teacher that he is, tells this in one parable with three scenes. Scene one is the parable of the, the scene of the indebted slave and the merciful king. Matthew eighteen twenty three. For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him how much? 10,000 talents. How much is that? A lot. Say a lot. It's it's more than a billion. At the time of Jesus, the entire budget for Herod's Israel was 900 talents. So we're talking about 11 times the national budget for the land of Israel. Our national budget is 3.5 trillion. And of course, we'll overspend that this year because we're 17 trillion in debt. We need Dave Ramsey in Washington. But imagine if you owed somebody 35 to 40 trillion dollars. What's the point? It's not possible to pay off what you owe. And that's the point of the parable. But since he did not, verse 25, have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children. The slave, therefore falling down, prostrated himself before the Lord and said, Have patience with me, and I'll repay you everything. Now that's an optimistic slave. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. There are some principles of forgiveness in this one verse. The word compassion, the word releasing, and forgiving the debt is essential to understanding what is the very nature of forgiveness. The first word is the word compassion. Say compassion. 
I've taught you this word in here before. The Greek word is the word splagizomai. Say splagizomai. Look at the person that's next to you and say, I hope your splagizomai is fine today. It's your spleen. It's your viscera. It's the word that takes place when you go to Disney, if you can afford that anymore, and you have to budget 10,000 talents to do that. But you get on the Tower of Tower, you, Terror. You've been on the Tower of Terror, and they just kind of creep it along, and then all of a sudden, what happens? Woo! And you have splagizomai. You better check your shorts. That's splagizomai. It's the word Jesus uses in seven out of the 11 times this word is used in the, in the New Testament. It's used of Jesus because he has a, a visceral reaction to the crowd. He loved them like sheep because they're without a shepherd, so he feels compassion for the multitude. And that is the goal and the basis for which forgiveness can be constructed. There must be a visceral response to the need. The second word is the word release. The word uh, release is also a wonderful word. It means to let go, to forgive, to leave behind. It's used of the, of the divorce passage in 1 Corinthians 7. You're no longer under obligation to an unbelieving spouse. Let them leave. And so you're willing to say, okay, I'm not forgetting. I'm forgiving by feeling compassion, and I'm letting you leave. And then lastly, forgiving the debt. I love this word. It's the word aphasis. It's, it's used in Egypt of the irrigation systems. They would take the Nile River and they would dam it up in a pool, and then when they needed to irrigate the fields, they'd pull the little dams away from the channels and the water would fall away from the pool. Wouldn't it be nice if when we had the angst of unforgiveness in our heart, we could simply flip a switch and release the barrier and the forgiveness could flow out of us and we would be, oh, so good, wouldn't we? We wouldn't drag those cadavers around behind us, would we? And so the principle is this. Forgiveness is an act of the will rooted in what? Compassion, which releases and cancels any debt. Let's read that together. Forgiveness is an act of the what? Will rooted in compassion, which releases and cancels any debt. And that's what the Lord in the parable does for the slave. The debt is canceled. There's a story of a British man who lived prior to World War II in the country of France. But he brought with him his favorite possession, a Rolls-Royce convertible coupe. And he loved to drive the Rolls-Royce convertible coupe through the countryside of France at high speeds. Sounds fun. One time, the, the coupe quit. And as he got underneath the car, he realized he had broken an axle. So being a man of means, he got the car to the shipyard in France, put it on a barge, headed back to England with a note saying, I'm Lord so-and-so, Lord Chancellor and here is my car. I'd like you to repair the axle and send it back to me. And after a few weeks, the car was delivered in perfect condition. He drove it through the countryside of France at breakneck speeds, and after a few weeks he realized he had not paid the bill. So he jotted a wire back to the company and in England, Dear Rolls-Royce, I sent my car to you a few weeks back. It was a Rolls-Royce coupe with a broken axle. If you will advise what it costs to repair it, I will gladly remit the payment as soon as possible. 
and he got a wire back. Dear Lord Chancel Roy, at Rolls-Royce we have absolutely no record of any Rolls-Royce axle ever having broken. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness which is rooted in compassion and releases and cancels the debt. Not only do you not have to pay for the rolls, we don't even keep a record of it. That's how God is with our sin. Jesus forgives us. He doesn't keep a record of our sin. The Old Testament says as far as the east is from the west, so has God removed our sin from him. God doesn't remember and say, oh, Jesus died for this and this and this and this and this and this and all these things you've done. No, Jesus died for it all, and I'm not even going to hold it against you anymore. That is forgiveness. So we come to scene two, and scene two sees forgiveness extend from our vertical relationship to our horizontal relationships. Scene two is the forgiven slave and his unmerciful heart. It says in Matthew 8:28, but that slave went out and he found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now a hundred denarii is three months wages. And he seized him and he began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him saying, have patience with me and I'll repay you. Same phrase that the first slave used with the Lord. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what is owed. See, his vertical forgiveness did not translate into his horizontal relationship because he felt a need for justice rather than mercy. When I am offended, I want there to be justice. Some of us have an overdeveloped sense of justice. My second child got in trouble the first time in preschool because he pushed a child off the sliding board because the child pushed ahead in line on the slide and the teacher said no one gets to the top until the last person goes. He had an overdeveloped sense of justice. He wanted to be rewarded. He wanted to be recompensed. And somehow that's how we are. Somebody's offended us. And we want there to be justice. And God says, you know, I've given you mercy. I want you to extend mercy. The principle is that forgiveness should be a horizontal reflection of my vertical relationship with God. And there are times and people, when I've actually done this, I will put my hand to the, to the heavens and say, God, you have forgiven me. Help me to forgive them. That is a wonderful, practical object lesson. You can teach your kids that and hopefully learn from it as well. Because of what God has done for me, I can extend mercy and forgiveness to someone else. Mercy in the dyad's home is spelled with five letters, U-N-C-L-E. Many of you know we've raised four sons. My wife is here, and it's a miracle that she survived raising four sons. But as boys, they wrestled all the time. They were never allowed to hit each other, but they wrestled a lot. You know, there would be times when we'd say, quit fighting with your brother. And they would say, we're not fighting. We're just communicating. Those of you who don't get boys, that's just kind of how we communicate. We're physical creatures, simple creatures. But they could wrestle, and if they had a conflict, they could wrestle it out. But in our house, the rule was when you reached your breaking point, you could tap out, and in our culture, you could say uncle. You know, saying uncle is I give. And as soon as you tapped out, the man on top has to get up and release you. Now, I have a son 
who shall remain nameless, Ben, who is the most hard-headed, stubborn child in the history of the planet, don't know where he gets that, his mother, and he, to this day, has never said uncle. I'll tell you a cute story about my wife. When she was six years old in Africa as a missionary kid, her dad wanted her to wash her hands before dinner. And she said, I can't wash my hands. She went into the bathroom. She came back. Her hands were still dirty. He said, why didn't, why didn't you wash your hands? She says, there was no soap. Do you know why there was no soap? She ate the soap. This is a child who never said uncle. You see, if you're going to understand forgiveness, you need to understand mercy. Over the years, I've worked dozens of men's weekends, and one of the guys I love to speak with is a great big old guy named Bill Glass. Bill Glass was a defensive end for the Cleveland Browns back in the 60s, the last time they were any good. Anybody Johnny Manziel fans, we're hoping for the Browns' sake that he's the answer. Doubt it, but he might be. But Glass was, a, was 6'4 and 285 in the 60s before weightlifting and steroids. He was massive. And I worked with him one time at a retreat up at Howie in the Hills near Orlando, and he had had a traffic ticket that week, and he had to go to court and appear before a tiny little woman judge who sat way up on the bench. And as she called his case, he walked down this hulk of a man trembling before this cute little woman, and over her reading glasses, she said, Well, Mr. Glass, do you want justice today? He looked up and said, No, ma'am, I'd like mercy. When it comes to forgiveness, we need mercy because that is what God has given to us. My sin is so much greater than any sin that anybody has committed against me. I have offended God far more, infinitely more, than anybody has offended me. I can't remember in my life anybody offending me more than once or twice because frankly, after the second time, I'm writing you off. My sin caused Jesus to go to the cross and die. And therefore, what God has done for me, He wants me to do in my relationships with other people. Scene three of the parable is the unmerciful slave and his unforgiving heart. Matthew 18, 31 says, So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, the Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? So as his Lord moved to anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him, my heavenly Father will also do to the, same, the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. You see, the principle in scene three is that an unforgiving heart transforms the offended into the offender. I've had coaches that said, oh, you're going to play this position or that. And that didn't happen. And I hold that grudge and I become the offender rather the offended. I know of parental situations in my own life where my one parent or another did not do what I thought they should have done. And I hold on to that and the offended becomes the offender. There are circumstances on our job where our boss or our employee makes a promise that doesn't come through 
true, and we hang on to that, and the offended becomes the offender. There's a spouse who promises to love you till death do you part, and that promise is not kept. And we drag that corpse of unforgiveness around because the offended has become the offender. Now, I don't know what it is with you, but I know that if you walk in this world for any amount of time, sooner or later someone will offend you. And it is said that forgiveness is the process by which we set the prisoner free only to realize that the prisoner is us. Forgiveness is the process by which we set a prisoner free only to realize that the prisoner is us. There's a story told of the great Harry Houdini. One of his famous escape attempts was to get out of a safe while handcuffed. And as they locked the safe and raised it with a crane, he began to reach into the back of his pocket where he held a little pin that would undo the handcuffs and realized the pin was missing. And he began to gooch and gooch and reach and grab, and everything he could do minute by minute went by until the better part of an hour had passed. He could not find the pin, and he just collapsed, figuring he was stuck in the, in the safe until they got him from outside. And when he collapsed, he collapsed against the door of that safe, only to find that it had never been locked at all. And that's what forgiveness can do. It is the process by which we set the prisoner free only to realize that the prisoner is us. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So we want to close with a couple of things. Number one, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is not forgetting. You know, I've heard it said, well, you've got to forgive and forget. You can't forget if you're deeply offended, if you're deeply grieved. I don't think God expects you to forget. And ladies, let me just say this as an aside. You have a harder time forgetting than, than we do. We men are simple creatures. I can't remember what I did three weeks ago. My wife, as wonderful as she is, she remembers everything I've ever done wrong to her going back to our second date. And so don't do that to us. Don't start the litany of you've done this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. If you're having a fight, let's fight about right now, please. Let's not fight about what I did two years ago. Now, men, we have to understand that and understand that when we hurt our spouses or the women in our lives, we hurt them more deeply than we hurt. We get over it, for the, for the most part, more quickly because we're not emotional creatures like they are. They have experience tied to an emotion, and that's why it's burned into their being. We just go, oh, whatever. That's oh, okay. But you don't know he did this to you. Ah, whatever, it's okay. See, we're different in that way. But we don't forget, and my wife doesn't forget. But she does forgive. Forgiveness happens when we stop attaching consequences to the actions which have hurt us. There are times when I have to move on in life and say, you know what? I can't get over that, I'm offended, I forgive that person, and I'm just going to move on. And I'm not going to give that person an opportunity to hurt me again. It's okay to do that. Hopefully not with a Christian brother or sister, but even then. You know, Barnabas and Paul split up. They didn't want to hurt each other anymore. 
it's okay to move on. But it isn't okay to keep the consequences and hold them over someone's head. One of my favorite times of dealing with Gwen is when we, when we have a fight and I come to the point of saying I was wrong, because I'm always wrong. I was right once, I think it was 1984. And I'll go to her and say, honey, I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? And over the years, once in a while, she'll say to me, not yet. <laughs> because she understands that when she forgives me, in a biblical sense, the consequences are gone. It's so great to be married to a person who gets forgiveness. See, we do premarital counseling from time to time, and we ask these young kids, why are you getting married? Oh, because we're in love. Sorry, that ain't good enough. Love is not going to keep it together. I don't care what the song says. Forgiveness is the key to any relationship lasting because sooner or later you fall out of love and sooner or later one or both of you will do something stupid and if you don't understand how to forgive, the love isn't going to get you through it. So let me ask you this question and we'll close. First, have you personally experienced God's forgiveness? You cannot hope to forgive anyone in a, in a biblical way until you first understand Jesus forgave you. When Jesus dies on the cross, he says, it is finished. The word is tetelestai. It means your debt is paid in full. I owe God my life because I have sinned before him. And God says, I'm going to take your debt and I'm going to give it to Jesus. And he dies for you. He Pays your debt in full. Have you experienced that? If not, that's why we, we exist here at TBA, to help people understand how to connect with God and understand his forgiveness. If you don't have God's forgiveness, you'll never make it relationally. And then second, is there somebody in your life that you need to forgive so you can move forward? Is there that parent or that student or that teacher or that coach or that boss or that friend who isn't anymore who's just cut you to the quick that maybe you need to go to them and say you know what we need to get this right there's a there's a there's an offense between you and me and and the scripture says whether it's you're the offender or the offended you need to go to them and try to make it right is there somebody even today you need to call and say you know what i was wrong will you forgive me and that's that releases it and then it's up to them if someone comes to you and says, I was wrong, would you forgive me? Then I need to forgive them. Or the offended becomes the offender. So as the band comes and we close our time, I'd like to ask you to pray with me. Do you understand the principles of forgiveness? Forgiveness is an act of the will rooted in compassion which re releases and cancels any debt. Do you understand another principle of forgiveness is that my forgiveness vertically ought to impact my forgiveness in my relational situations horizontally. And then do you understand that an unforgiving heart turns the offended into the offender? Father, thank you that we come before you as a people that you have cared enough to forgive and I pray you would help us forgive each other within the body here at TBA and that you would cause us to be known as forgiving people outside the walls of this building, in our families and on our jobs and in our neighborhoods. 
so that we can share the gospel of Jesus with those who need to hear about forgiveness. Father, we don't need justice. We all need forgiveness. And so we thank you for your forgiveness in Jesus. Amen.